of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperius Rex! Hello, and welcome to a new edition of Third Degree Burn. I am here once again with my partner, Kurt Greenfield, and we are continuing our coverage of Namor the Submariner. Uh, Kirk, you want to tell us what we're going to be covering since you have the first book? What are we covering today? Well, today we're looking at two issues. Uh, we're doing these in dyads, uh, two issues at the time. So we're up to 13 and 14 now. This is just after the Invaders reunion arc that was pre-recorded by our group at another time. So if you're scratching your head saying, Wait a minute, I missed a couple issues. It's like, no, no, go look for our group discussion on the invaders that John led. So uh, we're picking up just after that with Namor 13, Reap the World Wind. Don't forget, Tim, you need to introduce yourself by name. Oh, did I not? I'm sorry. I'm Tim Elliott. It's okay. It's early in the morning. It is early. Things like that. Well, you want me to jump right into it? I don't think yeah. we have any more news. At least I don't. I don't I don't have any, uh, no, I don't have any kind of any news at all other than it's, you know, we're recording this in October, so it's Halloween, so it's my favorite time of the year. I never knew that. Oh, yeah. You can tell by my uh, my elaborate Halloween decorations I put out. I'm still working on it. I, gotta put, I have two gargoyles I need to put out today. Are these the blow-up type or are these the, the uh, PVC type? I bought them from some guy that was selling them. And they are kind of a cast foam. They're about three feet high, about two feet wide. And they're a soft foam with kind of a polymer. It's a kind of a, you know, it's like, uh, it's foam. But it's, it's soft, but it's, it's, it's formed to look like they're stone. Cool. Yeah. Their eyes light up. And I made a couple, couple custom stands for them that fit over our, we have kind of a railing in front of our porch. So they're sitting on the porch overlooking the yard. Well, I've got a stone one out front that I bought from somebody who just kind of guards the property. Nobody nice. notices it. It's very small. In oh. fact, he was my local comic book uh, shop operator, but that's, that's a, just a tangent. We should probably <laughs> get back to Namor here. Um, I wanted to mention that this issue, is long, along with the Invaders trilogy, or ARC, uh, was reprinted in Namor Visionaries, Volume 2. That's Namor Visionaries by John Byrne, um, Volume 2, which covers issues 10 through 18. And I'm having a devil of a time finding one reasonably priced because of those Invader issues, which is um, fairly highly sought after and, and makes the volume pricey. At least on the interesting. I you can find it. There's lots of them available, but they are, in my opinion, inflated, cost um, prohibitive, prohibitive yeah, for me at least. But you can get them. You know, they're around. I found one that was uh, uh, going for only about three bucks in wow. England, thirty-five dollars shipping. And I just I was like, no, I can buy one for thirty-five bucks over yeah. here. I want it less. So it's uh, to, uh, it's available. Get Andy to pick it up for you. Uh, we'll see. It's still yeah. going to cost that much to ship. Right, right. 
So Neymar 13, I've got the synopsis on this one. Tim's got 14 in just a moment. So we'll jump into it now. If you have queued up your, uh, your floppies or your online, it is available online as well. Neymar 13, Reap the Whirlwind, Words and Pictures by John Byrne. Coloring, Glenn, uh, Glennis Oliver. Oh, I never know how to say her name. Editing, Terry Cavanaugh. Editor-in-Chief, Tom DeFalco. And Submariner, created by Bill Everett. I believe John Byrne is not only drawing, writing, uh, he's inking as well. And I kind of like this, this issue, especially because of the delicate inking, the number of flashbacks, the clever dialogue that he puts into the mouths of the people in the, the Marvel Universe. And this, this topic, if I can straight for a second, is the elephant in the room. Namor has been pictured as a, um, a villain or antagonist in the early Silver Age, and then he pivoted and became an anti-hero, and then he became just a superhero. And this has to reflect the early years, and that's the point of this particular issue. A green cover shows Namor in profile in red swim trunks, posed with the horn of Proteus, as Giganto from Fantastic Four number four lumbers behind him, lunging onto the docks of New York City. A yellow triangle in the upper right-hand corner identifies this as part of the series, The Trial of the Submariner. We think this would be an arc, but it's not. This is a one-shot. We join a flashback of the critical sequence from FF4, where the Human Torch flies a clothed but recently shaved Namor out over the ocean and drops him into the water where he kicks off his obscuring clothing and regains his memory, or at least part of it, as the torch hovers nearby. The voiceover narration appears to be from a trial and an objection is lodged, as the witness cannot possibly know what was going on in the mind of Namor at this time. Defense attorney Klein is told by Namor in the modern day courtroom that Johnny Storm knows the events at least as well as Namor does and to stay his objection. The flashback resumes as Johnny recounts that Namor swims to an outpost of Atlantis and finds it destroyed and glowing with radiation near the Grand Banks. He thinks that he'll never find his people now and the lawyer objects again, asking that Johnny confine his answers to what he knows. In the audience are Reed Richards and Ben Grimm who quibble over how knowledgeable Johnny is on any topic. Also in the room is Sue Richards, Namorita, Carrie Alexander, Thor, Captain America, and others from the superhero community. The flashback resumes as Namor, clad in red trunks again, that's a point we need to discuss. He confronts Johnny on the docks and then swears vengeance on the human race. As the attorney cuts Johnny off, Storm continues, saying that Namor has been away from the sea for, oh, as, sorry, as the attorney cuts Johnny off, Mr. Storm continues, saying that Namor had been away from the sea for years. No cross-examination at this time. The protection calls, prosecution calls for Reed to the stand. Fine then tells Namor that he wishes he'd let him challenge these witnesses, but Namor says there's no need that these are his friends. Reed speculates that Giganto was a subspecies of the whale family over a redrawing of the cover image with Namor again in red trunks. Reed doesn't know the dollar amount of any damage that's incurred. 
He does testify that Neymar had only limited control over the beast, especially considering his induced amnesia. He states Neymar was not responsible for his actions due to his dependency on water and the amnesia. The prosecuting attorney challenges that assumption, saying that after weeks in the ocean, Neymar had sided with Dr. Doom to attack the FF and remove their building into space, told in FF number six. Reed agrees, but points out that Neymar had also allied with the FF to turn against Doom and save all their lives, including replacing the building in a flashback. <clears throat> yeah, guys, it wasn't a very uh, practical uh, story, but it's part of Marvel. In a recess, Namor's friends gather to lock him up, saying that, sorry, uh, it's kind of dim lighting in here. I'm stumbling over my own words. In a recess, Namor's friends gather to buck him up, saying that Lady Chatsworth and Cap haven't yet testified about his service to the invaders. And Cap points out that he may not get to, given his secret identity as a mass vigilante. Thor states that he has yet to testify, to Reed's great surprise. Phoebe Myers arrives and asks Namor in a recess to let her explain. She invites Namor to come with her to meet someone after the trial, but Namor states he may not be free to go anywhere. In a two-page subplot, two Atlantean guards are exploring increased volcano, uh, volcanoes in the region when they spot a woman spying upon them. They pursue her and are shocked to see that what they think is the long-dead Lady Dorma hiding in an underwater cave. Thor takes a stand, and after some quibbling over his taking an oath, he assures them that it's no conflict of interest to take an oath over the Bible, since it means so much to the surface dwellers. He testifies that he fought with the Avengers in issue three against Namor and the Hulk, and a horde of Atlantean warriors. The sequence is wonderfully redrawn. It's a collage of Jack Kirby's panels from Avengers number three into a single full page of battle. The prosecuting attorney challenges that Namor didn't recognize his former World War II ally, Captain America, and Thor bristles, almost being found in contempt of court. Reed subdues Thor, and Caleb Alexander takes the stand. He basically confirms Reed's theory and explains how Namor is currently controlling his rages with his belt buckle filter. But does it work? Well, he points out that Namor would hardly be sitting there calmly if it didn't. Cut to a two-page cutaway of a transport in the Canadian wilderness that wrecks and a contained wild animal is set loose. A wonderfully shaded image over a patch of blue sky shows the outline of a huge pair of wings against the darkening gloom. Back in New York City, the jury is filing back in as the defense team frets that there's no more defense of not, re not guilty by reason of insanity. In a cliffhanger, the jury foreman begins to read off, we find the defendant, but we cut to a graveyard scene elsewhere where a group of six people are disinterring the body of Daniel Rand in a wintry graveyard as the jury verdict is read in a news report that's being played over a boombox that's set atop an adjacent grave marker marked Mackie. The result is guilty but insane. Namor is being put into the custody of his probation officer, Captain America, for 100 years probation. Namor is not displeased. In the meantime, Misty Knight, Rafe, and more of the Iron Fist supporting cast 
are waiting the opening of the vault containing Daniel Rand's, uh, Daniel Rand's remains. With a hiss, an awful smell emerges, gagging all who are gathered there. But the foreman says, don't know what you were expecting to find, but it's not human, as he lifts a shovel full of withered, rotted vines for all to see. Next issue, the mystery of Daniel Rand's... I'll get this right yet. Next issue, the mystery of Daniel Rand's death deepens as Namor is drawn elsewhere as a child is waiting in 30 days. Well and done. That's my synopsis. Very, well, very well written. For stumbling, I should have pre-read it and gotten more familiar with uh, the phrasing. No, no worries. No worries. This was uh, a difficult one to write because... It appealed to me so much because of the flashbacks and the artwork um, and the, the machinations of the courtroom that I really wanted to do this one. But I found as I started to write it, it's like, how do you summarize it without just glossing over it? You almost have to repeat the exact testimony. And that's not really a summary. It's a transcription. Yeah. So yeah, that, I, I found it much more difficult than I thought it was going to be, but I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I, I find that. And some of mine, I, I kind of let the, the sentence or two out because you have to, because what something Byrne has written is, describes exactly what's going on. So um, unless you're doing something kind of clever with it, it's, it's just it's, some of it's hard to write a synopsis. I really like this one. And one of the points that I wanted to underscore was that Namor was wearing red trunks almost throughout this in all the flashbacks. Well, people had noticed that sometimes he was wearing green trunks in the Silver Age, and sometimes he was wearing red trunks. And so if you follow the, them back and forth, you'll find that there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Um, it, it apparently in the... the uh, the 40s or the 50s, he was frequently in red trunks, and then somebody decided to shade him in green, and green was catching on in the Silver Age. So I, I tried to find a pattern in which issues was which color, or if his attitude made a difference, that he was pivoting to become more of a, you know, a, a anti-hero or more of a sympathetic character. And it's not linked to anything. I don't think it was intentional at all. It was just a colorist's mistake or assumption that kind of caught on. But people spotted it in the, uh, you know, when they started to challenge Stan in the letters pages about this. He said, what? He can't own more than one? You know, so the exactly. we're in the, in the wash, you know? Yeah. You, do you wear only the same underwear every single day? So, Well, know, I would think of, that the know. green would be more... Uh, Going along with his being an aquatic creature, you know, he's he's something from the ocean, so they'll put him in green, yeah, or blue or something like that. But I, it shocked me because I don't remember him wearing the red, and maybe it's because I'm so used to reading those. I've got a little pocketbook of the first um, six issues of FF, and that might have been re recolored, you know, after the fact, and maybe they have changed it if he was. Red or not, but I thought he was always green. Well, when you think <clears> of <throat> now, except for the shark skin suit period, which we won't talk about, <laughs> he's always. I like the green better. I think that the the, yeah. the red pops, but I think I like the green better. Um, uh, I I can't tell you except for a traffic light. I can't tell you why I have the reaction, but I I was assuming 
and I was looking for the pattern that red would be as he was an antagonist, pictured as a villain, and green would be as he was more heroic or more regal. And um, it, it doesn't quite fit, but in my head canon, that's that's where I go with that. Yeah. So, uh, not to beat this up too much, but I believe back in the golden age, the 1940s, the color palette was extremely limited. You had red, green, no, red, blues, blacks, and yellows. And there were very few shaded colors. So as a result, many of the golden age books look stark to us these days because they're reds and yellows and blacks in a lot of the pages. And there's no oranges or purples or other shading. They just didn't have the technology back then. So there's right. a peculiar... Um, you know, kind of leaning towards giving him red trunks in the golden age that uh, that by the silver age, they were able to refine some of the coloring and greens became possible. Purples, as we know from the, the uh, every villain in silver age, Marvel wears a purple outfit. Um, you know, they, they became possible and, and, and common in the comics. And then as they refined even more, uh, you got all sorts of, uh, color mixtures and gradations and zip its own. And uh, so that may play into it too. Yeah. The, speaking of zip tone or not zip tone, but the duo shade is nicely used throughout this issue, uh, especially some of the underwater uh, scenes. Maybe that's what appeals to me. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's nice to see, cause I know Bernie is such a fan of uh, BFF and Kirby's work of him when he recreates and he's very faithful to recreating these images uh, yes. from the FF or the, the Avengers. Um, he's not trying to take, put his own spin on it. He's just drawing it more in his style. Um, especially that one on page. I don't have my page numbers, but it's the, it's the, the cover where it's the, I think it's the replication of the cover where, but doom is attacking him and they're on top of a building. Um, Doom is like blasting Johnny and he's blasting the building at things feet. And yes, that's nice. Uh, you, will... don't, you don't often see that image. Um, you know, it was the first supervillain team up, so to speak. And true to form, they turn on each other. Mm -hmm. But Burn, Burn not only redraws the panels or, or recreates them, but he, I think part of what appeals to me is he, he positions the heroes and the figures in exactly the right. same position or a very, very similar composition in, in the panel. And it, it just, it's wonderful because it evokes memories for me. It just pushes my button because I remember seeing that as a kid in a mm. slight different form. So, you know, <clears throat> he's leaping from a meteor to an, uh, to doom's plane or whether it's the fight with the hordes of, Atlantis, um, you know, it, it's a wonderful recreation. I literally got out my Marvel Masterworks when this came out and opened them up on the couch so that I could have it open to Compare. the right pages. And I did a comparison. And the thing that I really thought was cool was the um, the, the full page battle scene recreated from uh, Avengers number three, which I did not own and never purchased at the time, but with a reprint. I was able to see, yeah, he combined Giant Man holding up two Atlanteans in with uh, Namor 
throwing Cap around like a rag doll, and Thor whirling his hammer. Those were all three separate panels, which he's mixed into this one uh, summary panel just wonderfully. So uh, I really like that. And uh, just a, a footnote on the side, this same battle from Avengers 3 was also redrawn by Jack Kirby himself when Kirby did the wonderful one-shot over in Thor 1, is it 112 or 113? I think it's 112, where he's being taunted by um, by fans to tell them, who's stronger, is it the Hulk or Thor? You know, <laughs> they're holding placards. Well, Thor sits down on the curb and he says, well, there was a time when we fought. And from Thor's point of view, he tells the story of Avengers 3 and just the battle scenes. And like any good warrior telling a battle story, he exaggerates a little and he tilts the playing field slightly towards himself. He makes it sound more dramatic than it originally was. It's a wonderful retelling. And when they finally get to the end of, of the, the tale of the flashback, Thor realizes that he's been lost in thought and he's wasting time. So he takes off without ever answering the question. <laughs> That's... It's a wonderful issue if you're if you like early Civil Age Marvel because it it it's a key event in the Avengers history and it's drawn by the same artist who expands upon the fight. And it, it really works terrifically. But we're here to discuss Namor, not Avengers three. Well, I wanna that you've talking about the um um, is it uh, when when Doom pulls the uh, Baxter building off? Uh, off that's uh, is that yeah. FF six or five? That's six, six isn't it? Six. Doom, Doom comes his origin <clears throat> in number. I'm sorry, not his origin. His first appearance is number five. So it's Namor in four, Doom in five. They team up in six. I know. Can you imagine that? That's just three issues, like. Boom, 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 and you introduce two of the most major characters uh, in Marvel. But one I want to point out when when Reed during the trial, Reed says, "Oh, well, he teamed up with Doom, but then he he uh, he sided with us, and it was that makes him a hero." Well, he didn't really so much side with you as Doom portrayed him, and in his rage, he went after Doom. So it was more him wanting to get back at Doom for I think. Uh, uh, portraying him, and that scene, because I've got it in my pocketbook and I've read it, seen it a thousand times. Yeah. The scene where he is, he puts a he puts a like a helmet on, but his body is strong enough to withstand space. And he hops. They're just happening to be going passing a meteor storm, so he's hopping from meteor to meteor to get to Doom's ship. And Kirby draws is this panel or several a series of panels where where Namor is gradually getting closer to the camera. Right. Closer and closer. And that is just like, Kirby was a master at that. And that is just so cinematic. Yes. Um, and then that last scene where he just bounces off and lands on the ship, which is what Burns shown here. So, right. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that shows his love for the FF. And the, Never the, mind the science behind the story here that the meteor shower would ruin, would destroy the plane or that he's leaping like a leapfrog. Right. Uh, with uh, outside the bounds of gravity, uh, you know, just go with it. It's comics. Right. Kids. It's comics. It works. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, you know, Namor leapfrogs up to the plane. He, he electrifies uh, like an electric eel. The outside of the, the plane starts to fry Doom, who thinks that he has to eject to get out of 
the plane, and then Namor takes over this plane, whatever it is, and flies it, you know, it and the Baxter building back to New York City, where he gently lowers it. This is really interesting, considering that he's never flown a plane before. He doesn't, he's unfamiliar with Doom's craft. He doesn't know how the grabber works, yet he accomplishes all of this. So we'll, we'll just accept that. But he but did. Remember, he, he did. just in the plane and left. You know, <laughs> hell with the FF. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he was. But he, Doom did show him the device, and he dismantled yeah. it so he could hide it in his belt. So right. maybe after that, they had a kind of a, a one-on-one, and this is this is how you uh, uh, you operate it. But, you know, and maybe there was a, I don't know, how, how he returns the... And the Baxter building seems to just fit back down where it was, and I guess... Perfectly. And yeah, it connects and it, all of the pipes and all the electric, right, and right. everything goes back to normal with a wave of hand. It's like plugging it back in, right. Uh, I think Dr. Strange would have had a better job <laughs> placing it, but uh, he wasn't invented yet. But again, that's comics. That's, you right. know, that's comics. And Byrne, to get back to Byrne, Byrne takes this concept and dusts it off in his fabulous five-year run of the FF and has Kristoff, when Kristoff is acting as Doom, listen to the tale, listen to the plan, and at a certain point cuts off the replay and says, that's it. It would have worked if only he had done this. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it better. Right. So it's about a two or three issue arc there where it happens again. But that's I, when they just he, realistic because don't they explode the Baxter building? Baxter buildings can't survive if they've been taken off their foundations and are flown out in space. Um, you know, they, they literally won't hold together once you, you sever the structure and the support. Um, you know, that, that building should have collapsed like the, um, the World Trade Centers. Well, yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah, it's not. Unless you had some kind of structural integrity field that was somehow holding it together. Yeah. But Anyways, again, it's, it's, it's comics. comics, guys. It's okay. comics. It's comics. Did you notice that during the, um, maybe I'm wrong here, but during the trial, when he's draw, the way he's drawn Reed does not look like the way he was drawing him when he was doing his run on the FF. He looks a little closer to kind of a Kirby. He's a little more full in the face, a little more uh, muscular. Because uh, when he was drawing Reed, he kind of drew him as a kind of a lanky, a tall, yeah. lanky guy. Yes. Um, so I don't know if he's doing that on purpose to kind of match the look of the flashbacks, or he's just drawing him closer to, I don't know who was drawing uh, the FF at the time when this was going on. Um, because I I was, I had to look this up. I was surprised to see Ben Grimm in human form. And I guess at yes. this time he was, he could change back and forth maybe. I don't know, but uh, you know, they played with that so often. Who can tell? But yeah, you're right about that. I hadn't noticed the change in Reed, but I enjoy it. I this, yeah. this to my eyes, this is Reed Richards in a suit. You know, he's he's being uh, you know in his human scientist identity rather than superhero stretching costumes. But yeah. you know, this is the Reed that I remember. Well, he's. Uh... The courtroom dialogue is very well written. You get to, I've, yeah. I've, I've watched enough Law and Order to know that it 
seems to be accurate. I mean, the objections seem to be um, phrased well. Phrased well. They are, and they are uh, exactly the kind of objection that they would do when they're when they try to when they're trying to ask a witness to uh, tell us what you think somebody else was thinking. They immediately say, "Well, you don't know what's in the mind of that person. You, you can't, you can't do that." Uh, I do think the um, the when he brings up the cap, cap says, "I may not be able to testify because I have a." secret identity, so they won't let me take the stands. I think that would also fall under Thor. I'm not sure if they would let Thor, because Thor is not a citizen of any of the U.S., and he's not a citizen of any um, any uh, country or city uh, on the planet. I don't know if if Asgard is recognized as a um, like a sovereign country or dimension yeah. or... They don't even know that Asgard exists, uh, depending on which Silver Age book you read. Uh, some people know of it or refer to it in other times. Thor just disappeared. They don't have right. any idea where he's gone or how, it, if it's in our dimension or somewhere else. They're, they're just, it's a blank. For well, most he, people. They don't know. Right. Was he still? Was he still Donald Blake at this time? He wasn't, right? Well, back in Avengers three, he was right. But uh, I'm talking about the time of this trial. He's not Donald Blake. I I really doubt it because I think they just dispensed with that concept during the Walt right. Simons period. So I can't answer that. I don't know exactly yeah. where this fits in. We should have Brian do his research because he's so good <laughs> to to tell about what else was going on during this month. Well, it's it's it, sometimes it, it's it. You have to dig through a bunch of other uh, comics to know what's especially. Because I, this time I wasn't reading the FF, so I had to go back and look as to why Ben Grimm was uh, in human form. And same with the Avengers, which is too bad because I thought it would have been nice when at one point the the uh, prosecutor says, says Thor can't uh, testify because he doesn't, uh, what's he say, he doesn't have any... I don't believe Thor is known to have any training in clinical psychology. It would have been cool if he said, no, but it's Donald Blake. I have knowledge oh, of that. Yeah, that would have been good. No, yeah. I don't think that's public knowledge. They, yeah. they would have gone there. Um, um, that's good. Yeah, I thought that would have been kind of cool. But the, the, yeah, the courtroom is all, um, it's it's all well done. And, and Namor is... Um, you know he's willing to uh, take you know t have his day in court and rely on whatever the court says. You know I would think this would be more of a because he is the, again he's not a citizen of anything and it, and if it, I don't know if Atlantis is considered a sovereign uh, nation or country or whatever it is uh, at this time, wouldn't this be more of like a like a world trial? Wouldn't it be more of something like after uh, the trials? Uh, is it like the Nuremberg? Am I forgetting my history? Wouldn't yeah. it be more of a maybe. world court that would be doing this instead of just a New York court? New York maybe. court. Um, but I like the fact that he's he's willing to you know take whatever happened. He, and it's when he tells Phoebe, he goes, "Hey, I may, you know, I guess if they find him guilty and say, hey, you got to.'" 
you go to jail for a hundred years, he's willing to say, okay, I'll, I'll abide by that. And I will. Um, I'm not sure that Namer would, would actually <laughs> that. I have, I have to give the impression that he's sparring with Phoebe because he's, he feels like he was betrayed with her or by yeah, her. He was. Yeah. He was. He's, he's very cold he's to her. Stiff, and he's not ready to just kiss and make up or let her have it easily. Um, he's, he's pointing out, you know, you're making a, quite an assumption here, Phoebe. Yeah. Uh, we don't know the outcome. Uh, you know, some of us are bound by laws and by the courts and other politicians and ex-presidents may not think that they are, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> slipped out. Um, I like this sequence because it's the elephant in the room. This addresses a point that that has been a sticking point for years. And when Stern, um, Roger Stern, introduced Namor into the Avengers and gave him Avengers status, uh, he wisely brought up uh, the issue, saying. But would the public accept this? He's been a villain. He's been, you know, the destructor of New York City. He's been, uh, you know, it's not something you can sweep under the rug. So I, I like this issue. I think it, it, you know, as I keep saying, addresses the elephant in the room, just as Byrne, right from issue one, I know you don't agree with me, Tim, but from issue one, he had to address Namor's um, swings of, uh, what's the word that I want? Mood swings. Yeah. And, and how he's been written by different writers over the years in different aspects. And I think he does a wonderful job of explaining that and then putting it off to the side. But it comes back in this issue one year after the series began and he has to pay the due. I got a big kick out of the fact that he's on probation <laughs> and the Captain America is the probation agent. It's like, I just thought that was a wonderful way to wrap this up, you know. And well, just... I, it is. I think I would think it would have been more they would assign that to Reed, but I guess Cap is acting more as a because you know he is an agent of the government, so he has more he has yeah. more authority. Um, yes, and he wants to vouch for him. Uh, exactly. They don't show it to you, but I would expect that Cap would have volunteered. You know, Your Honor, I you know offer I will serve as you know. I don't know. The rest of the story, whatever happened in the courtroom, we cut away from it. So all we hear is just the verdict over the radio. So we don't. That's know. A nice. I like that. I like that his cutaway for him to kind of play with time like that. Um, I I do say I wish because Damore is now running Oracle and he does seem to have, um, you know, he's wealthy. That aside from the probation. <laughs> He would have to pay some type of uh, court all the damages. Yeah, he would have to. He's got vast wealth, and they should say, "Okay, you not only you're on probation, but you have to pay." It's almost like community service. You have to pay either for the destruction that you've caused, so the reparations over the years, or set up some kind of um, a fund for things or something, just so he has. Some and maybe that's part of it. We don't hear that, so maybe that is part of him having to use his vast wealth and Oracle as a company to help compensate for all the damage that he's done. Um, so I thought that was um, that would have been a nice little um, add-on to it. 
And I also want to say, and I, I've not noticed this, of all the issues we've covered so far, uh, you see it very clo clearly on uh, the page where Namor is talking to uh, um, Cap and Jacqueline. Um, you can clearly see his gill slits in his neck. Ooh. And you see them in a couple other panels. And I don't remember Byrne drawing those in our previous issues. Maybe I just overlooked them because they're so small. You got to go look for this. You can see them also when they're right reading now. the verdict to him. When they say, we have your honor, we find the defendant. You can see Namor in that lower bottom corner. You can see three lines, I think, are supposed to be his gills. Uh, let me scroll down there. I'm online, yeah. folks. Let's pardon the, the delay. <clears throat> Uh, I go back and forth. Wait a minute. I went right past it. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, okay, I'll give that to you. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, Namor's standing in profile in the uh -huh. last panel. And you see his pointed ears, his semi-flat top head, and his uh, protruding chin. And arched eyebrows, and he's obviously standing there passively waiting for the, the word, the sentence. So, yeah. you know, and I, I don't remember if we established that he had gills or his lungs had some type of or a hybrid something, but he obviously has some kind of gills in his yes. neck. It's, it's gills, and as, as I recall, uh, they did cover this, and it was shown in x ray version. In um, the Submariner, uh, Prince Namor, the Submariner, in issue 18, the series from 1968, literally mm -hmm. the alien race abducts him and does an X-ray looking at him, and they do uh, these days we call it uh, alien abduction and right, thing. <laughs> but uh, they they check him out and you can see <clears throat> X-rays. It's very clearly gills. Because they mess with it, and that becomes a plot point in the next arc. <clears throat> yeah, I think Ohat. <clears throat> excuse me, I think Ohat <clears throat> says he doesn't have gills. He has some type of filter or something in his lung that just filters out the water, or some kind. Of, can say he's got some kind of a his lungs are hybrid or something, but they can breathe air or they can filter the oxygen out of when he's breathing water in. Um, that matter. It's comics. Like, yeah, it's comics. I do like the escape of. This is not a spoiler. Uh, it's the Griffin that escapes from this big high tech uh, truck. That you say it's Canada. Um, he said it's a hemisphere away. So I was trying to find out where that would be. And then when the hemisphere put this in like Europe or something, if it's a, a hemisphere away from New York. Yes, I believe you're right. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, if, if uh, the trial's in New York City, and that's an assumption, um, literally the expression a hemisphere away would mean the other side of the world or um, southern hemisphere versus yeah. north. Um, Canada makes more sense. Yeah. Now, when you said that, that makes more sense. Where else would they be driving where it would have snow and mountain peaks? Yeah. Uh, maybe they were in Antarctica and that they were on their way to the Savage Land 
but that is not established. No. That, that's a, I isn't, don't know. Isn't, um, isn't there a high-tech prison in Denver that's the vault or the... Yeah, I don't know where it is, but Nothing. yeah, I would assume that's where they're transporting him to. Yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. But it's a nice, it's a nice uh, scene where the, the road gives way, and, and if you're not looking closely... You can see the Griffin in the very far corner flying off as the guys are kind of upside down in their cab, and they're reporting that the the cargo is at says so the cargo is at liberty, which meaning they've lost their cargo. Because you see, is uh, when he's the door pops, I guess and you see his two gleaming eyes, and he's uh, I guess he flies away. I love um, this sequence because it's so subtle. It's, oh no, it's not subtle. The wreck is so obvious. But yeah. The, the attempt to not identify what they were hauling. Exactly. So subtle. I just really like the sequence. Back up a page to uh, the wreck itself when the transport truck or whatever you want to call it is going over the edge and there's an avalanche of stone and uh, snow and uh, they're going over the edge. Squint just a little bit. Does that look like the Eagle from Space 1999 or at least the front half of it? The cab does a little bit, yeah. It looks a little like, um, yeah. It, it's it looks similar, and I'd have to go back and compare. But the the transport truck that they were transporting the Hulk in when Doc Sampson sets the Hulk free because he mm-hmm. thinks he was unjustly attacked. That looks kind of they remind me. It's 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 typical burn tech, but it's a kind of a high tech. Um, it looks like something that would be right, <clears throat> right out of Thunderbirds. It's like some Jerry yes. Anderson design. Yes, yes, that you're absolutely right. Did Jerry Anderson do Space 1999? He did. Okay, yeah, okay, I'll buy it. That it all yeah. makes sense now. It's a, uh, I think the chief guy was a gentleman named Derek Meddings. It was a, uh, it wasn't necessarily a model maker, but he was a. Uh, in charge of the special effects, and then later went to work on uh, several James Bond films. So when we get to this last final scene in the graveyard, I love the fact that that Byrne has staged this in four uh, sequential panels, vertically, uh, panoramic panels. So you've got the same color sky, you've got the same skyline uh, behind them that is remarkably consistent, and then as you get lower down, you know, the, the graves are in the same location and just the people keep walking around shifting from place to place. And right. if you, I don't know if your copy is clear, but if you read the headstones, here's a reader's tip folks. If you ever get a scene in a Marvel comics, uh, of a graveyard, read the headstones. They're almost always in line in jokes or other Marvel bullpen characters artists, creators, or jabs at, at one another. Right. Always, always read the, the, the uh, headstones. On the far left is one Mackie. How common is that name? You know, wasn't there a, a um, bullpen member, Ralph Mackie? That's Ralph Macchio. This is probably Howard Mackie. Howard Mackie. That's the word I was name yeah. I was looking for. It was a and writer. Right in the center, <laughs> although I had a hard time seeing it, um, 
there's a headstone that says RIP. And uh, brand. And I don't recognize all of these characters. Um, uh, you know, is that Misty Knight and Colin Wing standing That's the next two. to you? Yeah, in the yellow coat and the black right. coat, and the, they're both wearing kind of pink miniskirts. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, Byrne has been doing this a lot, and we've discussed this, that he is setting up upcoming stories, and he, and he gives us little tidbits of the story until it moves into that story and he's done with the previous story. So he's kind of wetting your appetite because during the the uh, the Invaders reunion, that three issue, we saw the return of Danny Rand or Iron Fist, who we thought was dead. He's come back. So they are suspicious of that. So that's why they're digging up his grave and they find that it doesn't have a body in it. It has, uh, you said, it looks like, looks like weeds or vines or some kind of vegetation that the guy pulls up in a shovel. So Danny Rand is not in his coffin. So which it just leads more credence to maybe he is alive and back. Which yeah. we'll get more of that in the next issue. Yep. Okay. Anything else before we've been talking for about an hour here? No. Uh, no, anything? we can move on. It's a it's a sorry, Kurt, go ahead. No, I just wondered if you had any more comments. No, it's it's a it's a it's a nice dent uh, story, and it gives you kind of a, you know, if you're if you're not familiar with Namor, it gives you kind of a little bit of his backstory. Yep. It kind of levels a playing field, so to say, that now he's uh, okay. You're not clear of charges, but you are. We've got that behind you, and you can move forward, being Namor. Uh, how that fits, I don't know, because I think he does later revert back to because uh, is this before or after Atlantis attacks? This is after, isn't it? Well, I didn't know, but uh, Brian told me that it was uh, after because that's how they... That's what I thought. That's the starting point, that the world thinks that Namor is dead because mm. of Atlantis attacks. Because of that, I right. never read that arc, I so I'm, I'm a complete blank on that. I just I've read it, but I don't, yeah, I don't remember it. This series. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's, uh, let's move on to issue 14, which is the one I have a synopsis for. And my synopsis is not as eloquently written as yours, but I will muddle through. Mine's a little more, mine tends to be a little more dry. I think it's because for my job, when I'm doing, I type, I do estimates, so I type descriptions, and they have to be very specific and to the point. There's no flourish to them. So mm -hmm. I, I think that kind of taints my, um, my writing. All right, you ready? Yes. Okay. Namor Submarine issue 14. Uh, again, our writer is writer, artist, and anchor, and letterer is John Byrne. Our colorist is again Glennis Oliver or Oliver Ween. Um, cover arts, John Byrne. Our editor is Terry Cavanaugh. And our editor in chief at the time was Tom DeFalco. This had a release date of March 5th, 1991 with a cover date of May 1991. Um, the other Byrne books at the time were, he was still writing Iron Man, so Iron Man number 268 came out, and he did the cover art for uh, what the the, the comedy uh, books that Marvel was putting out at the time. That was number 12. 
And Namor, the Submariner, number 14, A Child is Waiting. We open on the boardrooms of Mars Corporation. Phoebe Mars is told Stark Enterprises is aggressively trying to take over the company. Phoebe knows Stark is retaliating for her own brother Desmond making his own attack on Stark. She demands that lawyers block Stark's move or she will replace them. She storms, she storms back to her office just as Submariner arrives. She is pleased to see Namor, but his response is cold. Phoebe asks the Prince of the Sea to her office because she wants him to meet someone. She orders a helicopter, and when the secretary makes a comment under her breath, Phoebe fires her on the spot. Namor tells her a good leader needs compassion. She, make a, she makes a disparaging remark about him losing his own kingdom, and he starts to walk out. She apologizes and asks him to stay. When a helicopter flight and a short drive, the two arrive at a large house in Southport. The two are greeted by a man named Sumner, who tells Phoebe young Master Edwards will be pleased to see her. Sumner leads them to a room where a small boy is playing with action figures. The boy does not seem to recognize Phoebe. The boy is her son. Interlude. The Deep Ocean, 9,000 miles away. Lord Vashti confirms that Lady Dorma has returned. See last issue. Cut to the Brant Building, New York. Joy Meacham confronts her uncle. She wants to know what is going on, but before her uncle can respond, Danny Rand enters the room and Joey is suddenly calm, if not a little confused. She leaves, no longer agitated. Warden Meacham is worried. Danny's hypnotic gaze is wearing off. Danny grabs a man by his shirt and reassures him the master plan is in motion as long as they have the allegiance of Lord Kelvin Plunder, a.k.a. Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, who just entered the room with a saber-toothed tiger. Get back to Southport. Namor and Phoebe explore the ground as the young boy plays. Phoebe explains how, at 19, she went away from home hoping to escape the Mars family. She met a man, they married, and were in love for 18 months. But her husband Michael's business started to founder and then fail. Phoebe suspected her brother was behind it. It was confirmed when Desmond offers Michael a million dollars to divorce her. He takes it. Three months later, Phoebe found out she was pregnant. Her brother demanded she abort the child, but she arranged to have the child in secret and taken to Southport to be cared for because a boy was born with special needs. Namor is sympathetic, but asks why she wanted him to meet the boy. Before Phoebe can respond, she screams as a griffin, who escaped courtesy of last issue, crashes through the trees. Namor does his best short rip and punches a griffin hard in the jaw. The two continue to battle when the winged creature takes a fight to the air. Namor, having lost his ankle wings, is out of his element. Tries to force the griffin back to the ground, but falls to his death when the monster's collar snaps. Death does not, death does not come as the monster grabs Namor by the leg and gently flies him back to Earth. Baby approaches, but the griffin growls at her, acting more like a guard dog. Namor realizes the creature has continued to mutate and is now is completely docile. He now sees Namor as his master. Baby the, says Namor is her master as well. She is in love with him and proves it with a big smooch. To be continued. Good summary. Oh, yeah. A l- l- little dry, but... It, I was uh, skimming over the, the uh, online issues as you were uh, reading them, and, and you're, you're right on. Yeah. Uh, the artwork is a little bit more muddy, um, and maybe it's the inking, or maybe it's the reproduction, but it's, it's darker, 
Um, some of this takes place in October or, or in the fall. And so there are lots of trees without leaves all over the place. But I've got something uh, to share with you if you, uh, you know, if you're ready to discuss the artwork. Yeah, yeah. We can get into it. First page, we open in the board meeting, and in the background, flying between the skyscrapers, there's a very, very small figure of a winged something flying. And then next page, upper left, reflected in one of the uh, skyscrapers, uh, chrome and steel, we see the shadow of a winged something that is flying around. I did not notice that, Kirk, at all. Oh, and it's not over with yet. When we get to the helicopter and they're flying out uh, to to the house, although they don't know where they're going yet, over Manhattan we see in the back on the left in the same orientation a winged something that is following the helicopter. And there's one more, as I recall, but there, you know, it's there if you look for it, but. It, it's clear that the Griffin has been dogging, pardon the expression, or or shadowing Namor or Namor. for him, <clears throat> and uh, you know tracks him down. Basically, he's been flying around the city, uh, looking for him, looking for his master. Um, that's how I interpret this. But yeah, I think you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. And I never even questioned how the Griffin found Namor. But that, that's perfect. Makes perfect sense that he's been following him uh, the whole way, and was just waiting. And I guess he didn't attack when they were in. But if he had become more docile, which he has, um, he wouldn't attacked. Uh, and it's a, in a in a wonderful two page splash page where he crashes to the trees. Uh, yeah, yeah, wonderfully colored purples, yeah. reds, <clears throat> and brilliant yellows is a great reveal. Well, that uh, red of Griffin it, pops, yeah. If you hadn't already figured out who it was uh, from the cover, uh, you know, it's, it's no... The cover, thing. yeah, the cover pretty much gives it away. You can tell, um, except I will say the cover has him attacking him what looks like in a building or in a room. Yeah, And obviously right. he attacks him uh, outside. Um, Fourth place, I, do, I thought I saw that, that small figure, mm-hmm. but... Now I can't find it. Um, was in the the scene with uh, not the lawyer, but the the caretaker for the kid. Uh, there's a scene. I'm scrolling back and forth here. Sorry, folks. It's going to take me a second. When he enters, says, "Oh, you know, welcome, uh, Phoebe. Uh, you know, he, he'll be pleased to see you." Uh, there's a sequence as they arrive when Phoebe is. I can't find it now, but it was in, again upper left-hand corner. I thought it was hidden behind the trees. I thought I had seen an image of the Griffin, very, very, very small, very slight. I'm probably wrong, but it's hidden. That would in be the, a, a good place to put it, or above the house, way yes. in the distance when they first pull up uh, in the car. And can't find it now. Never mind. Yeah. And this basically this this is. Uh, little backstory on Phoebe explains, I guess she, she was trying to get away from her, her, her then alive father and, uh, who, and, and brother who I, who I hand, or handed at, they were very controlling and she wanted to get away from that and have a normal life. So when she meets the, some guy named Michael and they you know, 
fall in love and then they're happy and they're living somewhere kind of a very idyllic life. Um, and I don't know what kind of business he has. He has some kind of a, I can't tell it's some kind of a, a, a business that goes under and he becomes very despondent and she doesn't know what to do. And then Desmond shows up and with a, basically a, a briefcase full of money and says, Hey, if you take this and leave and divorce my sister, then, and he does, you know, the guy takes it and leaves. And that's when I think she realizes that he was probably responsible for the, uh, the business going under, he was doing something behind the scenes. Um, and then that's when she had the, the, and I, and I don't know if it's hinted that when he tells her that, Oh, you, you know, he wanted me to get rid of the kid and she couldn't do it. Um, and I don't know if that's Desmond's idea that, you know, you've had a child with this man who was kind of a commoner or, not worthy of the Mars name, so we can't have that. But that's why she she says she has the kid in uh, Singapore, I think. And then they smuggled the kid back in the country, and he's been living, uh, I guess, in this house with, with caretakers. And she even has a – I didn't put it in my synopsis, but when she approaches, she has a, a different name because uh, – what is it? He calls her Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Payne, which I guess is the other guy's name. Right. So, Michael. Um, Michael Payne. So she's using that name, and that's when Namor says Mrs. And he's I just play along. So they think that that she is Mrs. Payne, and that's because the kid is named Edward Payne. Um, and he obviously is, the way he's kind of written, I, I assume he's on the spectrum. Um, Byrne actually uses a different term for it later. Uh, which is not used anymore, but um, he obviously is probably autistic or something because he doesn't seem to, uh, he seems to be kind of cut off in his own little world. Yeah. The Griffin shows that's up. familiar. Have we seen this sort of a character before? Well, we will if you read Elswin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Makes me think that uh, Byrne has a relationship with. Um, with a child, he seems to keep coming back to this special needs child, mm -hmm. uh, who's kind of a blank slate that he can write in different ways or use in different manners. But I, you know, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, yeah. three times is enemy action. If you quote <laughs> Fleming, um, you know, there, I, it's been at least twice right off the top of my head. And I, I think there's something there. He's got a relationship or there's somebody in his extended family. I think that's what I would think. Cause I don't think Byrne has even his own children. So uh, no, no, it's his personal so. business, but it keeps yeah. coming up. Right. Um, it's funny. The kid's playing with, looks like an Iron Man. He's wearing a Spider-Man shirt and he's playing what looks like Iron Man. And I can't tell what the other figure is. It's a green figure. It almost looks like Martian Manhunter. I don't know who he's playing with. They look kind of like Mago figures. Um, yeah, were they in production at this time? No. Mago was, I think, in the 80s, they went under. Uh, this was a bit of more the size of um, what was hot about this time. Toy Biz or um, the Secret Wars stuff. 
Those are Mattel. I think Toy Biz was out. Um, Abby Arad, Arad was putting out tons of Marvel stuff. Um, oh, I love the Spidey T-shirt. Yeah, that's I, that's kind of the stuff he would do with uh, Franklin. You know, Franklin always had like a four and a half shirt. Yeah, he would draw him sometimes. Um, and I what do you what do you think of the? Um, we're getting two kind of teaser stories. We've got the Danny Rand, which we get more involved with that, and we get and I will say they're not uh, they're not trying to hide the fact that this is not Danny Rand because when this Joy Meacham comes in and she's she's really upset with her uncle and kind of demands what's know what's going on. She goes, I've been like, yes, my, I've been, uh, my head's been in the past few days, but you know, Sunday, I know what's going on. You have to explain it to me. Then Danny comes in and suddenly her eyes go wide and she's kind of, oh, okay, no, no, I'm fine. And wanders off. And that's when he says, Oh, I thought your hypnotic gaze was unbreakable. Well, that's a hint right there that this is not Danny Rand. It's somebody Pretending to be Danny Rand. So, I uh, I didn't read that. It. I didn't read it that way. You're right. You're absolutely right. But I didn't read it that way when I first read the the book because I didn't know uh, the the status of Danny Rand. I yeah. knew that he was behaving out of character, that he was meaner, that he was this was not the compassionate Iron mm-hmm. Fist that that was heroic. But I didn't catch that he did a hypnotic zap to, to her. I just missed that. I just thought she had a change of, of heart or change of mind as she looked at his face and went, oh, that she had seen through him or realized, oh, crap, I can't deal with this, and she turns and leaves. I didn't, yeah. I didn't read it for what it really is, and it fits perfectly with the reveal that's coming. Uh, you know, a good clue that he laid out That's there. Right. And that way, I think if you're paying attention, you could probably know who this person is that's impersonating uh, Rand. We still don't know what this, the, 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 this master plan is. I know it, we know it has something to do with the Savage Land because they are looking at a large map and they're doing something that is probably illegal, but they, it involves Kazar. Because he walks in the room with uh, whatever his saber-toothed tiger's name is. Uh, Zabu. Zabu. And seems to be either he's either hypnotized as well or he seems to be compliant with what's going on. Um, but you're right. He is he is, he is drawn as a much more aggressive Danny Rand. And he proved that in the first reveal when, he, when Misty Knight grabs his appell and he proves that he's got the iron fist and he smashes her bionic arm. Um, so that's, again, and then we cut away. We don't know what's going on with that. We go back to our story. We get Phoebe's little backstory. Um, and then we get the Griffin, which, if he's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that Neymar has to rip his shirt off to fight this thing. Um that he, and then he, of course, and again, he, we, we forget that he doesn't have his ankle wings. He keeps trying to fly, and he, and he's just floundering. And then that's he's when he's got the, dress shoes on. Yeah, that's true. He kicked those off too, as well. Um, 
But why the griffin, if the griffin is more docile, why is it attacking him? And it's not until later when the his, um, his, like his harness snaps and he's falling. And Neymar says, you know, I, even I can't survive this. And then he grabs him like a puppy and just gently lays him back down. And he acts, he has act more like a guard dog. He's like, because he had kind of growls at uh, Phoebe. And that's when Neymar realizes he starts to actually start petting him and he starts licking Neymar's face that he's continued to mutate and he's now more, I guess all of his humanity is gone uh, from, what's the guy's name? Jack, um, I can't remember the character's name, but he's now just an animal. Right. Yeah. And he's I never knew the Griffin in any other form than this. So I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about, about mutating, what have you. A Griffin is a winged, lion in you know in in mythology and and that's how i understood as i uh, grew up and so when i saw this rendering of a griffin i it fit it was like a, what, what backstory i didn't have any idea that he'd ever been human except that i'd seen him on a cover you know in amazing adventures fighting the beast you know years and years earlier and didn't have any memory of the story at all uh, I yep. really like the panel where uh, he's licking Namer's face. That's that really sells it for me that you know he's a pet. He's, right. That that this has all been play for him. The attack, the flying, the rescuing him, like a rag doll. You know, the Griffin is playing, but that makes I sense. The way that right. Burn blindsides us with that and plays it as oh two. Two superhero or super um, powered creatures come together. Of course, they have to fight, fight, fight until they decide that they're on the same well, it's side. That, it's, it's, yeah, it's that typical Marvel uh, uh, fight well, under the, under a misunderstanding, and then we're oh no, we're we're friends at the end of the issue. So, and this leads in. I think the Griffin becomes kind of Namor's, which works with him not having his ankle wings anymore. Yes. So he has to be able to get around. I, I really like this. I thought it was just brilliant plotting over the whole story arc that they, you know, he was introduced, that he was subdued, he was captured, he breaks out. They ultimately have to do something with him, although we don't know that yet. And so there's like three acts for, for the Griffin, and this is act two. So I, I really like it. Also, uh, I've noticed in a couple of the pictures of Namor from the side, those three gill slits are very prominent in this issue. They're there. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And, I, and again, I don't know if that's something that he had not drawn in the past, because I had not noticed them until these. But yeah, you're right. Every He has made it very clear that those slits are... Um, it's it's similar to if you've seen Waterworld, Kevin Costner, but his are kind of behind his ears. If you peel his ear back, and he's got gills back there. Uh, this is very similar to that. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Waterworld. I heard it was so bad. It's it has a lot of potential. I, I have a soft spot for it. It's not a good movie, but I I watch it because it is very. Uh, there's a lot they could have done it became kind of a generic action fic, but 
Do you think it was originally pitched as a Namor Submariner story? I don't know I don't, the story. I, so don't, I don't think so, because it was just uh, the, the premise behind Waterworld, and it's not spoilers for this. The movie's 20 years old, at least. The, the polar ice caps melt, so the whole Earth is covered in water. So people have had to adapt to living on the water. And because of that, and it doesn't doesn't give you a timeline, but it doesn't seem like it's too far in the future, maybe a couple hundred years at most, that he has and maybe others have started to adapt. So now he's a, like a homo aquaticus. So he has web feet uh, and he has gills. And, he's, and <laughs> what's funny is, is a side effect of that he doesn't live in the water. He lives, he's amphibious. He lives on the land, but he can go and recover stuff that's, you know, from the old world that's submerged. Uh, and dry land is the is the big thing. Dirt is like the most valuable substance in, in the world. He He's like an expert sailor. He has this big trimaran sailboat. And they seem to hint that because of his mutation, he is like the world's best sailor. Interesting. Yeah, I've it's not... worth yeah, it's 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 worth watching. Dennis Hopper's in it, and he cheeses scenery a lot. Um, effects are pretty cool. I mean, it's it's all done on a, on open water. Well, you know, if they ever get around to doing Namor in a movie, um, or as a series, it's it's a an appealing concept because we embrace the concept of a submariner who can live in both elements, but. Impractical execution, it has to be heavily CGI laden or special effects because of the fact that humans can't breathe and live underwater. So, all right. dialogue and action has to go on on Earth. Now, I know there was an Aquaman movie where, where they executed it very well, and I guess he shows up in the latest, uh, what was it? Um, uh, Black Panther. Black Panther movie where it, it's a thinly veiled version of, of Neymar. So I haven't seen that. So I'm kind of talking through my hat here. Uh, but, I did, you know, the ambitious nature of doing a Man from Atlantis series, you, you have a major hurdle to have to overcome in the 70s and the 80s when they were pitching this uh, to, to overcome because the, there are some things you can do and there's some stock footage you can use, but... It well, it's unwieldy very quickly. To, in terms to your point, of it has to be, yeah, with Aquaman, they, they basically uh, just, they just CGI'd kind of a water environment around them and they kind of probably digitally moved their hair to make it look like they're underwater and then he just talked normally. You know, they right. were just speaking like we would. Um, so it, it's possible. I think the, technically they can do it. I think the bigger problem is, uh, and if you haven't seen the Wakanda Forever, which is not a very good, not a very good trail of Namor, as they call him, um, he's kind of a, you know, they're trying to make him kind of a uh, antag or a, or a uh, you know, uh, a, a, he's an antagonist at first, but then possibly you could become more of a antihero, but it's it just doesn't fit in that story it's like don't introduce uh namor in a black panther film i mean i know he 
there were some storylines where he he uh, flooded Wakanda because I think because he married didn't he marry Storm at one point didn't Namor marry yes. Storm yes and then she died or something or thought she died so that's why he attacked Wakanda no wait a minute I don't know about Namor marrying her I know that T'Challa married T'Challa okay okay then for some reason Namor did flood Wakanda I think in the books uh and I think that they're kind of pulling from that for this right. uh yes this story I think that's true I'm not familiar with the story but they're basically two kings yeah or two two hidden kingdoms and I don't know you know the, well, you're right at, at the time that they were pitching these things and these stories and the Marvel Cinematic Universe came into being, they were adversaries. They were constantly one-upping each other or not getting along. So, yeah, you're right. Well, they I mean, consider this a pitch for a Namor movie. Introduce him in an Invaders movie. Make it period. He can be fighting the Nazis, because that's the, the one bad guy that everybody agrees we can still portray as a bad guy. And you can introduce Namor... You could have um, Cap, possibly, and if Chris Evans probably couldn't replace his role, and maybe you introduce a couple others. So he's introducing that, and then had come up with some reason why he's he disappears, and you know maybe all that stuff was covered up by the government, so nobody else knows about it. And then, then you could have his own standalone movie, maybe. I don't know. That's I mean I think he needs to be introduced there. Or in an FF film. He doesn't need to be introduced in uh, a Black Panther film. Just like the the latest Ant-Man movie introduced us to MODOK. MODOK doesn't need to be introduced in that film. Right. They're just kind of handpicking stuff. But, um, well, that's an interesting concept. I like I like your idea. You know, if they're doing the an Invaders movie, I agree. Cap... Namor, maybe the Human Torch in some sort of uh, CGI, uh, or you know, cast somebody so that he's walking around whatever Invaders headquarters or or you know the World War Two, um, the War Department, yeah, headquarters, what have you, and not actually demonstrate his powers, but have somebody in red tights and and referred to as uh, the Human Torch. We've seen him, by the way, in one of the. The uh, the original Cap movie, the original right. we see, first Avengers. Yeah, we see. Um, he's see in, him he's, in the glass tube. Yeah, it's in the world. It's like the World's Fair, New York World's Fair, right. and it's the he's a synthesoid or whatever he's called. We see him as a cameo. Um, yep. Very so obviously, yeah. So the, yeah. you've already got the groundwork right there. That'd be a good idea. Yeah. Well, we're almost at 90 minutes here. Is there anything else that we need to deal with on this issue or to wrap I don't up? I think so. I think it's uh, this is kind of a this uh, we didn't kind of uh, I know we didn't talk much about the uh, the Lady Dormus stuff, but well, uh, we can touch on it right now if you want. Yeah, real quick. That just it's just again they're hinting at you know she was discovered in your issue hiding in a cave, and I guess they took her to. Uh, I guess this is Atlantis or wherever they're at. Uh, I think they're still the same cave because of the uh, the older wizened, wizard, no, wizened Atlantean. Um, who's Lord Vish- Vishti? 
that's who he's he's um that's who he's identified. I didn't, he does not call by name, but that's who he is in the wiki. He's called he's Lord Vishti, which I assume is a previous character. Um, uh, so you, you think this right. is? I think this is the same cave she was in. They didn't take her to their. Uh, now you're their right. Building. You're right. I had assumed very quickly that this was uh, that this was uh, a character who's going to be revealed a couple issues down. You're you're yeah. right. This is still this is Atlantis. This appears to be uh, the administration trying to figure out who who the who hell she is, is. Right. how can it be, and uh, that that picture of her, the full shot of her standing in front of whatever that is, a fishbowl or something, something, something a brain, whatever it is. It looks like a brain. Yeah, that's suggestive, and boy, you know, I think that's. <laughs> Well, it, it's at least it's a visual clue as to where this is going. Um, yeah, that's Atlantis or an outpost, yes. Well, it's interesting that he's dealing with two storylines that deal with people who may, be, may not be what they say they are. I mean, they say yeah. that this, this person is... I wondered if they were linked. I don't think they... I, I don't remember. I haven't read ahead. I don't I haven't read this in some I don't remember. But at this um, point, I wondered if they, they they were going to be tied together. That this was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Secret Wars. No, not Secret Wars. The invasion, Secret right. Invasion. At some point, uh, very briefly, the heroes all go to the Savage Land and discover a crashed spaceship. Where oh look, it's all the 1970s Marvel comic characters that have been held in the scroll world they've just been released and now mm-hmm. we have battle royal between modern day marvel and silver you know the yep. rage uh, marvel characters and you know i i wondered if this was leading to something like that like there are a whole bunch of people who've been replaced or revived or in some fashion the comet passing overhead has reanimated them. i didn't know where it was going <laughs> So, but I went along for the ride with Vern. It's like you know, I didn't. So he he threw some breadcrumbs, and you didn't know, you didn't have the answers, and you were puzzled, but you were engaged. And so I can't wait for the next issue and the next issue, and I'm there for the full well, ride. So. Right, and that's that's what he's doing very well here. Instead of giving us a contained story, and then okay, that's over. Here's our next contained story, and have that kind of abrupt ending. He is peppering in these little bits of upcoming stories and a page or two to to whet our appetite so that you keep going and you know, oh, okay, now he did this a lot with uh, when he was doing else ones. But, you know, and he's kind of, we've kind of finished this, we finished the, the, the trial and now we are moving on to more of the Danny Rand progressing and then this Dormer thing is kind of coming up behind it and now we've got the Savage Land thing going on. So he's got a lot of stories in the air that he's juggling, but he's doing a good job of keeping it, keeping us interested. So we keep coming back instead of getting confused as to what happened, you know, and not what. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of interested to know what's, how this is going. Um, this image of Dorma, um, the last image that we have of her, that she's kind of bathed in orange or gold light. Yeah. Is, is that true in your copy? Yeah, she looks like it's the light coming off the this bowl because she's yes. blue, right? She's supposed to be blue. 
Yes. Like the rest of the ladies. I was thinking in this, this shading that she looked a lot like, uh, who's Dick Grayson's girlfriend in uh, the new Teen Titans? Uh, oh, oh, uh, the Corey? orange alien woman? Yes. I don't, I don't know. I know who you're talking about, but I don't know, I don't know her name. But yeah, she looks a little like that, especially with the red just hair. A little, just a little. Yep. The skit tone, that's what does it for me. Yep. Well, he's doing more of the, this underwater scenes, he's doing more of the do a shade, and he's doing a, a wonderful job of showing the, the underwater effect of light. And you see it all over the walls. You see it on the characters' faces, um, everywhere. I mean, the underwater stuff is really well done. They're all—they don't speak in like regular speech balloons. It looks almost like thought bubbles. They are. They're thought bubbles. Yeah, which he is, had to establish that very early because it bugged him when they were speech balloons. Speaking. So, yeah. I like the organic look and feel of some of these chambers. They're, you know, they are portals and they're doorways, but they're not perfect arches. They're very organic, like they've been grown, like it's coral mm -hmm. or the shape. Well, yeah, I think it, it's, it looks like seashells or coral or it does look very natural. It doesn't have a hard, which is different than most burn tech has a very hard edge. He does get a lot of uh, angles and, and nine degrees and things like that. But uh, I think it's it's. An improvement over the the prior model of Atlantis. Uh, for example, go back to Tales to Astonish number seventy through I don't know eighty or so when um, uh, Gene Colan was drawing uh, the first Submariner series, uh, the Quest arc, and all of the the um, all of the architecture is square. And uh, looks like it was transported from Planet of the Apes or from the Flintstones <laughs> right into Atlantis. And even the, the outfits that all the Atlantean guards wear, wear they are identical to this, the Cree uh, soldiers' uniforms that he draws when he first envisions Captain Marvel. Mm. And that's an, I'm just riffing on memories. We should wrap this up. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I'll say this is a this is a fun story. I'm kind of kind of intrigued about Phoebe. I think I'm kind of ready to move on from her. And they've been dealing with the Mars stuff for so long that I'm I'm losing interest in her. I don't I don't I don't remember how this moves forward with her. Um, I like the idea of the Griffin becoming kind of a Namor's pet, and and it solves his problem of not having flight. So that he now has a steed that he can, you know, says transport. He can fly around on it. Um, and then I think the stuff at Rand. I know what I know where that's going. So I'm interested to reread that. And the I don't remember what happens with the Lady Dormer stuff. I don't remember. It's been so long since I've read this. I don't know where that's going. So it's like reading it new for for uh, for. Oh, I will say this. I love Namor's outfit in that first kind of splash page where he's, he's casually sitting on the desk waiting for her because she's in the boardroom and she gets mad at her lawyers and she storms into her office. And he's just, he's it's typical to burn. He's really got him a very stylish jacket. Yeah. Uh, right. Out slacks. Of yep. Open shirt. And you can tell the two secretaries are just kind of oogling him. They're like, Ooh, you know, they're 
they're looking at him kind of as a, you know, oh, who is this handsome guy in here? Uh, and then I also like uh, Namor's dialogue when when she fires the fires the secretary right off the bat because she says something under her breath about you lucky girl. And she says, what'd you say? He goes, oh, I didn't say anything. She says, okay, well, get out and fire her. And that's when Namor kind of tells her, you know, you're a little harsh. You know, you need to be more compassion. And then she makes that comment about him losing his own kingdom. He says, uh, of course, you immediately lost your kingdom, didn't you? And I love his responses. Just as I lost interest in this conversation, he starts to walk off. So he's really kind of had it with her. And then right. She comes, she comes back and like, no, no, no. I I'm sorry. You know, I've just had a bad day. <laughs> Why he still gives her, keeps giving her the time of day, I don't know. Well, he's, you know, he's always been played as having an unusual effect on women. They yeah. are attracted to him. It, you know, the athletic body, the, the fish hormones, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> um, they are attracted to him. And he's always had his pick and, and choice of the various uh, women in, in this different series uh, that are introduced. So I see this as a pivot point that she's going from an antagonist um, and a pawn of Desmond to be a, a more of a romantic interest. You know, True, I read right? this as sincere, that she is telling the truth. She's shown a secret um, that, that has been in her past, that she's really bearing her, her heart to Namor, and that the character is, is pivoting now. Instead of being an antagonist, although I wouldn't write that out, um, she's, she's now more of a love interest and a supporting character as we go forward. Whether it pays off, I don't think we ever see Edward again. Um, I, yeah, that, I, that storyline may be just to, and I, and I think your point, you can see her, that she's got two sides. She's got this hard, gruff business side where she's very, uh, where she fires this woman. And that's more of her brother. I think that's her brother's influence. And, and of course, she's also so frustrated that Stark is trying to take over her country. So she's already, her anxiety is already high. You know, she's already upset. And then he immediately, I don't know what response she thought she got, but he immediately is like, okay, I'm, I'm walking out. And then to your point, I think that is sincere. She's like, no. And then when she shows her son, she takes him all this way out to show her son. That makes her very vulnerable because it's like she said, she is revealing this part of her past that nobody knows about. And then he's very sympathetic about it. And then I think, I don't know if her, if, if, and I don't, I don't, this sounds very cliche when she says that you are now my master, which I thought was a, I thought that was kind of a bad line. Yeah, I agree. I think but, that uh, she says, I love you. She says, I've been, I've been searching for a man, the right man, the man I could love with all my heart and soul, without fear, without qualification, as I love you, my prince. I think she's maybe reacting to something. I don't know if she's just infatuated with him, if she's really in love with him. And I think, I haven't read ahead. I would guess this is not going to, this is going to fall apart. But it might be a progression for her that she can be more sympathetic and makes her more human. And maybe she can get out of the Mars, get out of the clutches of her brother, who is obviously very domineering 
and uh, has no he's he's kind of a you know sociopath. He has no compunction about anybody else anybody else's feelings. So I think she's trying to get away from that, like she did when she married the first guy, Michael, and she's seeing that with with um, Namor. So just to see I, where it's going. She's mercurial, just as her brother is. Yeah. Uh, or bipolar. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. As far as Lady Dorma goes, I know where that's headed, and uh, well, I'll have a couple comments when we get to that issue. Okay. All right. About well, I think. Uh, I think we've done a good job of covering this. Uh, again, thanks for coming on, Kirk. It's always a pleasure. We will continue to uh, cover these two at a time. And anything else? Uh, be sure to write us either at the face Facebook page, uh, Third Degree Burn. Uh, you can just address your comments to the, the Namor uh, subset or the interns or whoever you want to. Or you can write us at um, help me out. It's uh, gotta get burned. Gotta get burned. Dot com. Mm -hmm. But we'd appreciate hearing some feedback. What you like? Are we beating these issues up too much? Are we dissecting? Are we reading too much into it? Or do you agree with our point of view about Burns' direction and what and what he's plotting? So yep. let us know. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I will say just from covering these fourteen issues that I'm. Um, I'm having more. I'm, I'm enjoying them more than I did. I think the, my first time to read them off the rack, and maybe it's from talking to you and getting feedback and bouncing back and forth. That that always enhances something if you're discussing it. But uh, I'm I'm having a lot of fun with these issues. It also helps when you know where the series is going, so you right. can spot the clues and see what he's dropping, and you can see the whole arc as yep. it's coming out. You don't know where it's leading. You're just long for the ride. Uh, but I, you know, I'm seeing more character arts and looking for them now as an adult than when they were coming out, and it was just the next issue next month on the shelf. Oh, it's in my pull list. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it too. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, for Third Degree Burn, I am Tim Elliott. I'm Kirk Greenfield. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, -E -E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.